Amen. My thoughts uh, arise out of the gospel this morning, Um, so I'm not going to try to draw threads between the three readings. I'm just going to stick to the gospel, which is the great story of Jesus healing a woman bent over for 18 years on the Sabbath day and uh, having someone call him out for not doing the right thing. And when I first encountered this reading as a young person, I thought, what a stupid person. Who could even be that stupid to say, to, to, to call Jesus out for healing someone on the Sabbath day? Doesn't he know that healing is more important than keeping the Sabbath day? It's just obvious. It's blindingly obvious. And certainly the uh, the liturgy this morning picks up the theme of love as the greatest virtue. And, and we all know as Christians that whatever our other beliefs and practices may be, that love is our highest belief and our highest practice. There's no question love trumps everything in terms of our value system. And so when we hear this scripture reading, our first response is, what an idiot. How could anybody be so stupid? And that uh, response carried through into seminary, and I studied it in a liberal seminary where we don't take the scriptures necessarily literally, and we wonder if some other authorship had filtered in here, and so we thought maybe this was written in by the early Christians uh, as part of the dispute with the Jews about how the Christians got the gospel right and the Jews were all wrong, and so there was that sense, and certainly there is evidence of Jewish scholarship um, knowing that Jesus is absolutely right according to good Jewish scholarship of the time. And so Jesus was just representing the best of the Jewish tradition at the time and wasn't actually creating anything new. And so I went, okay, well, that explains it, that this was the product of the, the old um, dispute between the early Christians and the early Jews who were going hammer and tongs at each other in the early days of the life of the church. <laughs> and now, 2022, um, I don't think it's so crazy that someone gets their religion so spectacularly wrong. That's what's changed. For me, I, you know, how could anyone get their own religion so spectacularly wrong? Well, look at humanity. Look at what we're doing. We are now in the age of QAnon, where, where people double down on things that are falsehoods and absolute insane, crazy beliefs. And one of the most perplexing things about our current political reality is that no amount of truth seems to shake people's commitment to these false beliefs. In fact, there's, a, there's an inverse phenomenon where the more, uh, the more factual information gets promoted and disseminated, the more extreme people become in their commitment to their false beliefs. Um, it, it, in fact, it increases the polarization. It doesn't bring people together in a common understanding of what truth and facts are. And, and this, is, this is very perplexing. I've been reading about it because I don't understand it. I don't get it. Um, and the best explanation that I've come across is a psychological one where there is a, um, there's a, a, a cycle of narcissism and an addictive cycle where people are really relating to their idea of themselves where what's, what's intoxicating and seductive is this notion that I am in a group that is superior to the other groups in society, but at the same time is a victim of the other groups in society. And so I am both better than the rest of you, and the rest of you are oppressing me. 
And that particular mindset feeds a narcissistic cycle where, where what, is, what is being protected is our own ego, our sense of importance, our sense of self-worth. And the reason why we double down on our insanity is because when somebody shows us the truth, at some level we know instinctively that it is true, but to admit that would to be to face the collapsing of our entire ego and sense of self-worth. And that psychological price is too great a price to pay. And so we say, rather than say the two hardest things in the world to say, which was, number one, I was wrong, and I am sorry, we double down and we say, well, I don't know why you're wrong, but you're definitely wrong. Um, I remember a conversation that I had an argument that ran, I might have mentioned this in a previous sermon, it's been great sermon fodder through my life, but I was a 20-something-year-old active Christian leaving law school to go into seminary, Um, so I was absolutely committed to my ideology, my understanding of what was right and good and true and beautiful and the direction I was taking, and I met a fundamentalist gal who was also in law school. She was a few years behind me or she was just going in. We were both sharing the same summer job, and we got into a religious argument that lasted one month of our four-month summer job. And it, and it started with, why are you not going to be a, lawyer, a Christian lawyer? And I said, well, where, where I am, I don't know how I can be a Christian lawyer. Don't know how I can do it. Um, and I had an understanding. I think you can be a Christian lawyer now, but at the time, it didn't make sense to me. Couldn't do it. I'm going to go into the ministry instead. And so she started coming up with quotes from the Bible that proved that you could be a lawyer and be, a, you know, a servant of God. And... Um, and because I was committed to my direction and my way of life, I had to find counter-arguments because I knew she was wrong, but I didn't know why. <laughs> so what I did is I ran back to my dad, who was a theologian, and of course we, she was an evangelical fundamentalist. I didn't share that theological framework, and so she would come at it from her perspective, and I would say, I need an argument to counter this argument. What's the answer? And my dad said, well, the reason we don't believe that is this and this and this. And I'd trot back to work the next day and I'd go, okay, here's why you're wrong. And she'd go, I don't know why you're wrong, but I know you're wrong. Just a minute. And she'd go back to her pastor and she'd say, this liberal guy said this and this and this. What, what, why is that wrong? And the pastor would go, oh, well, that's because they say this and this, but we say this and this and this, and that's why we're right. And she would run back the next day and she would trot out her arguments. And we did this for about a month. And until it became obvious, I mean, she was a lovely person. We didn't have any animosity towards each other. We were just convinced in our bones that each other was wrong. Um, And the argument didn't bring us closer together. It, in fact, entrenched us in our point of view. And that was my exposure to that exact psychological process because my identity was at stake. I was going to be a minister. This was going to be my whole life. This is my value. I'm serving the Lord as best I know how, and and it's who I am. And if that were not true, then who am I? And what worth do I have? So psychologically, I had to double down. And and so this is the same thing in the QAnon world. It's the same thing in what goes on. And it's the same thing for every human being because that's, that's part of how we're wired. We're wired to, to take care of ourselves and our ego and our sense of self. Now, I am absolutely committed at this stage in my Christianity that Jesus came to show us a way to get out of that because that is behind so much of the chaos and violence and trouble in our world that the way of the kingdom of God is 
a way out of that. It's a way out of that doubling down and that narcissism, that egocentrism that causes us to defend ourselves even at the cost of truth and goodness and beauty and, and compassion. So like the synagogue leader, we find ourselves saying, come, come any other day to be healed. Don't come today to be healed. And the, the, the stunning lack of compassion and the lack of access to the point of your whole faith, is, is he's blind to it because he's so doubled down on his identity. And when you think of being a synagogue leader in Roman-occupied Palestine in the first century, you have that perfect cocktail of we are superior We are the chosen people. We are the people of God. The pagan Romans are oppressing us, and we are victims of that. And so you have that precise psychology that makes me go, oh, I get it now. I'm not Jesus in this story. I'm that synagogue leader. That's me. So the interesting question for me today in my reflections is, how do we get into that mindset, and how do we get out of it? Because clearly, when you read the story, a child could see that Jesus is in the right and the synagogue leader is in the wrong. And when we start to appreciate how deeply we are wired to be more like the synagogue leader, the interesting question for me is, what's the anatomy of that? And that's why I try to learn about that narcissistic cycle and, and how I might be participating in that and how I have done it in the past. It's harder to see how I'm doing it in the present because by definition, I'm attached to my ego. Um, So for me, the way of spiritual maturity is to develop the kind of character that is not afraid to admit that I am wrong and that I am bad. And so I come to the tradition in our liturgy of confession and absolution. There was a time in the 80s when I was uh, you know, coming into ministry that there was a real push away from the penitential side of our liturgical expression where we don't want to grind people down. We don't want God to say, you know, you're a terrible person, grovel, grovel, grovel. We need to be uplifted. God needs to love us. And all that is true. But by getting away from that practice of regularly saying, I am sorry and I was wrong to God, um, we in fact stunt our spiritual growth and we become out of practice of saying those two hardest things to say. And so in our liturgy, we ritualize us saying to God, I was wrong and I am sorry. And we just build it as a habitual practice. And in the liturgy, we remind ourselves that despite the fact that we are wrong and that we are sorry, God loves us anyway. And we need to flip that logic around from the 80s, where it's not that God is waiting for us to be righteous before God will love us. That's the mistake. God loved us first. While we were yet sinners, Christ gave his life for us. We weren't fixed yet. The the gift of Christ is in the fixing. And so the, the, the mature spiritual place is to say, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And... I am a beloved child of God at the same time. And it, it occurred to me that that, that sort of judgmental um, figure that we might imagine God to be um, so that we, we have to be good before God loves us, that's the mistake. Um, a, a better image is your dog. Dog owners, how does your dog think of you, right? Right? Your dog thinks you're the best. You are the best thing ever. And what does that make you want to be for your dog? 
because your dog already thinks you're the best, you want to be the best. It would kill you not to be for your dog what your dog already thinks you are. And so there's a little sign in our house that says, be the person your dog thinks you are. (laughs) And, And so for me, that's the disposition that allows us the courage and the confidence to say, I am wrong and I, was, I am sorry, because God already thinks that we are beloved. God already thinks we are true and beautiful and good. And yeah, we blow it and we screw up, but we are, we are beloved nonetheless. We are loved to the ends of the earth. And if we know we are loved, we can say, I'm sorry and I was wrong. And we can do that with the confidence that doesn't mean that our entire self-worth is shattered. We are still the beloved child of God who can stand up tall and say, here I am, warts and all, and God loves me. And if you can't love me, then that's your problem because I am a lovable person. And that's the opposite of the narcissistic cycle. It, in fact, breaks the narcissistic cycle because the narcissist doesn't have the sense of self and is trying to protect protect a very fragile ego that cannot survive the, the crash of I was wrong and I'm sorry, which is why all the defenses get piled on and piled on and piled on. And so if we really understand our belovedness, we can have the courage to say I was wrong and I'm sorry, and then perhaps when we find ourselves being the one saying, come on, this, come on, on any other day to be cured, What's, what do you think you're doing? When we, we are called up short by that childlike question of, are you being an idiot right now? Um, we go, yeah, I think I'm being an idiot right now. God is doing something really good right here, and maybe it's my ideas that need to change. It's not God that needs to change. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please stand. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we have come together to worship you, to give our heartfelt thanks for all our blessings and pray for the concerns of our hearts and for our church. We pray saying, Lord, in your mercy and responding, hear our prayer. We give thanks for the joys of summertime, for the abundance